This is the word of the Lord. Luke 23:44. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. When the sun's light had failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled from for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breast, and all his acquaintances, and the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance, watching these things. Let us pray. Our Lord and God, we come now finally to this last saying of your son, as he yielded up his life on the cross. We pray that we have been richly edified, strengthened, encouraged by the theology of the cross. And Lord, we pray now, gain glory for yourself this morning, once more as we look at the final saying of your son. And I pray, Lord, we pray that you would give us, including myself, ears to hear, hearts to believe, and minds to understand. God, I decreased you may increase. I become less so that you and you alone can become more in the lives of your children. Be honored, be glorified, be praised, because to you alone be honor, glory, and praise. For the glory of God and for the sake of Christ, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. We come this morning to the seventh and final saying of our Lord Jesus from the cross. You will remember that the first saying of our Lord found in Luke 23:34 was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The second saying of our Lord was to the penitent thief in Luke 23:42, Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. The third saying of our Lord found in John 19, 26 through 27, was to his mother and to the disciple whom he loved, as he, even in the midst of excruciating pain, obeyed the commands of his father to honor his parents. And he displayed tender compassion toward his mother, saying, Woman, behold your son, committing her into the care of the apostle John. The fourth saying of our Lord the fourth and perhaps the, the most profound and perplexing statement in all of Scripture found in Matthew twenty seven forty six, where the Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The fifth saying or, or statement of our Lord from the cross found in John nineteen twenty, Jesus said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. And last week, we considered the sixth statement found in John 19.30. It is finished. Tetelestai. It is completed. 
And now we come to the seventh and final saying of our Lord before he yielded up his life in the flesh. And it is Luke who records for us the final words of our Lord found in verse 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. These are the the final words of the Lord Jesus Christ before he yielded up his life in the flesh. I would like you to think for a moment, what about you? What would you like your final words to be? As you depart from this world and into the next, what would you say? I can remember the last words of my father as he walked down the hallway of my mother's house holding a worthless cane that he believed to be possibly of some value, preparing to be driven to the hospital by my mother. I attempted to to reach out and help him in his last words to me were, I've got it. Two hours later, he was present with the Lord in glory. What would your last words be if you could control those circumstances? What would your last words be if you had any power or control over what your last words would be? Would they be any indication of how you lived your life as a believer in this lifetime? It is assumed that the last words of the Apostle Paul to his son Timothy in the faith are found in 2 Timothy 4, 6. He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And at the same time of my departure and at the time of my departure has come, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. Brothers and sisters, those are words to die by. The last words of the great English Puritan John Owen were these. Oh, Brother Payne, the long wished for day has come at last in which I shall see that glory in another manner than I have ever done or was able ever capable of doing in this world. Brothers and sisters, those are words to die by. These are the words of those who, listen, understood that the gospel teaches us not only to live well, but in light of the gospel, in an understanding of the gospel, a right belief in the gospel helps us also to die well. Luke makes no mention of the cry of forsakenness that is recorded for us by John. Nor does Luke make mention of the it is finished statement of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he does record for us what is almost certainly the final words of the Lord Jesus Christ spoken from the cross. Verse 46, then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands... I commit my spirit. I wonder if you've ever noticed that in none of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, that in none of those four Gospels, none of the writers ever say that Jesus actually died. 
I wonder if you've ever noticed that. Matthew says that Jesus yielded up his spirit. Mark and Luke both use the same expression, Jesus breathed his last or breathed out. And John says that he gave up his spirit. Why do you think, though, that none of the gospel writers ever say in so many words that Jesus died? Well, it is not because Jesus did not die. He most certainly did die. But the gospel writers do not say that Jesus died in order to, listen, point us to a deeper truth. And what could that truth be? It is that Jesus' death, in Jesus' death, there is something unusual about his death. There is something extraordinary about his death. Therefore, the gospel writers, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, used unusual language to convey the extraordinary manner in which the Lord Jesus Christ died. I'd like us to consider the, the unusual language That Luke uses in this passage as we conclude our series this morning. Number one, notice the context of these words. Let's look at the verse again. Luke 23, 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Then the Lord Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, or more literally translated, with a mega voice. When pain, no doubt, filled the extremities of his body, his lips and throat were briefly supplied with just enough moisture so that he might summon what little strength that he had left and with a mega voice cry out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit with a mega voice. But notice what comes before that. Notice the word then in verse 46. The writer, Luke, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants us to see clearly some kind of connection between what he has just written prior to the crying out of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what has he just written? Verse 45. When the sun's light failed and the temple or the curtain of the temple was torn in two, Then, Jesus calling out with a loud voice. The tearing of the the curtain, the temple curtain in two. Do you see that? The vast, heavy weight curtain tearing in two, brothers and sisters, is no small matter. This was no thin, flimsy curtain. It was a massive curtain. It is said that it took some 40 people, 40 men, to carry this massive, heavy curtain that was torn in two. Now, what is the meaning of the curtain? The curtain, it was the the great symbol within the temple, blocking the entrance into the Holy of Holies. It It was the restrictive symbol, restricting the people access into the presence of God. Only the high priest, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, had the privilege of going behind the curtain, gaining access To the presence of God on behalf of the people. The high priest would go into this restrictive area and sprinkle blood on the altar for the sins of the people. Year after year, the people were reminded that their sins required atonement. 
Year after year, they would bring sacrifices for atonement as a reminder that blood, the blood of bulls, the blood of goats, and the blood of lambs could never truly, eternally save them from their sins, could never truly atone eternally for their sins. And now, that great symbol, that symbol of restrictive access is torn in two. The way to God has been opened, not by the blood of bulls or goats or or, or lambs, but by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, his eternal son, offering up his body a once and for all sacrifice for sin. Matthew 27, 51 says, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, from top to bottom. This massive curtain torn from top to bottom. It was symbolic. It was a miracle. The curtain that symbolized restrictive access to God was torn from top to bottom. And it was to symbolize that the way to the holy, the way to God, has been provided by God through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, not with a whimper, as it might as we might expect from a dying man, not with a faint cry, as we might expect from a dying man, but with a mega voice. He cries out, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. It is as if our eternal high priest king, the Lord Jesus Christ, wanted everyone who had ears to hear to know that his confidence in his father had not failed. And he was assured, he was assured that his sacrifice would be accepted by God. How? The veil is torn in two. You now have entrance. Those who place their faith, repent of their sins, place their faith in Christ alone, now have entrance, access into the presence of God. They now have a relationship or a means of having a relationship with God through the mediator The Lord Jesus Christ. And another evidence that his sacrifice would be accepted was, would come three days later when he rose from the dead. People, though, looking on at the sight of Jesus on the cross, believed that they were seeing a cursed man. Deuteronomy 21, cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. Jesus is the picture of of a cursed man in the eyes of the people. And yet, his last words are, Father, into your hands. I commit my spirit. He's dying. And in his dying moment, he commits his soul into the hands of his Father. These are not the words of a cursed man, are they? A cursed man does not commit his his soul into the hands of God. These are the ones, these are the words of one who is confidently trusting in his God. These are the words of one who commits his soul to his father. And with the words of scripture on his lips, he quotes a psalm of David, Psalm 31. And see if you can hear our Lord in this. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be my rock or be a rock of refuge for me. A strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hands I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. 
Just as at the beginning of his public ministry, when Jesus found himself tempted by Satan in the wilderness, he was able to resist Satan three times. How? With the word of God spoken from Deuteronomy. Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. So now even at the end of his life, he still has the word of God on his lips. It is as if the word of God has so saturated his mind and saturated his heart that when Satan came at the very beginning of his public ministry, he made it known that he was not only the word of God in the flesh, but he was also a man of the word. He was, also not, he was not just the word incarnate. He was a man of the word. And now, as he is breathing his last, God's word still gives him comfort. God's word still gives him assurance. It is never far from his lips. This may be what the Apostle Paul meant when he said in Colossians 3.16, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. Brothers and sisters, the great mark of the Spirit-filled life is the word of Christ indwelled life. The great mark of the spirit-filled life is the word of Christ indwelled life. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In all the difficulties, in all of the significant moments of your life, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What is it, brothers and sisters? When you are pushed to the end of yourselves, what is it? What will it be when you find yourself in the difficulties of life and yet the divine providence of providences of God? What will come from your lips? What will come forth from your lips? What actions will be shown to follow those words? I pray that it will be that your hope rests alone on God who has spoken his word. I pray that your hope would rest alone in God whose promises can be trusted. Listen, not only in life, but also in death. That his promises can be trusted not only in life, but also in death. The sense that, his, that God is his father has returned to our Lord. He has already cried out in the forsakenness, my God, my God. He's gone through that darkness, and now the sense of his relationship with God has returned to him. His primary relationship to God is this, it, he is his Father. That they are eternally one, along with the Holy Spirit. That he is his Father, he is the Son, the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit. Amen. And what we always need to remember is that just as the primary relationship of the Lord Jesus Christ to God was that God is his father. So also our primary relationship to God is that he is also our father. How did Jesus respond to his disciples when they asked him to teach us how to pray? Matthew 6, 9, pray then like this. Our father. God is our father because through Christ we have, a, we have been adopted as his children. God is our father because through Christ we have been adopted as his children. Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ 
according to the good pleasure of his will. It is because our mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, has God as his father, that we are adopted in Christ as God's children. It may be that there may be times in our lives when we feel like Christ on the cross and we lose a sense of God's fatherhood in our life. God, where are you? There will be times when the sense of God's fatherhood in our lives seems distant. It seems remote. It seems afar off from us. But God does not. And God will not ever stop being the father to those whom he has predestined, elected, and foreloved in Christ before the foundation of the world. He cannot and will not ever stop being your father. He cannot ever stop or he will never cease being our father. Listen, if God stopped being our father, those whom he loved, predestined, elected before the foundation of the world, then he would stop being Christ's father. You see that? Christ is the head. We are his body. We are united to Christ, and therefore we share in all of the privileges of Christ, namely that God is our father. Isn't he a father of us all? In one sense, he is the creator of all. But it is only through Christ that we become adopted as children of God. And if children, then heirs. It is only through Christ that we become his children. John 10, 29. No one is able to snatch them out of the hand, snatch them, the sheep of God, out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. He can never stop being our father. He has, through his son, granted us access into his presence. Come this morning, if you have not, repent of your sins, turn to Christ, be reconciled to God, for Christ has provided that entrance. Secondly, notice the verb. Verse 46 of chapter 23, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The verb is significant because it underlines the fact that Jesus died voluntarily. I commit my spirit. He died voluntarily. I asked you a moment ago, can you see Christ in Psalm 31? He is quoting the psalmist, but he is not like the psalmist. Why? The psalmist in Psalm 31 is praying for deliverance from death. Jesus is not praying for deliverance from death. He is embracing death. Death is his choice. Death does not choose him. He chooses death. Do you see that? Luke 23, Luke uses the the same verb or the same form of the verb as Paul uses in Romans 8.32. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up. There it is. Gave him up for us all. Do you see that? He gave him. And in that sense, Jesus delivered up his spirit. It was his choice. It was his choosing. Augustine, death does not come till he signifies his readiness. I need you to hear that again. Death does not come until he signifies his readiness. Jesus and no one else decided when he would stop breathing. Jesus and no one else decided when he would stop breathing. We see people in hospital and say, he's a fighter. He's a fighter. No, God is sovereign over that moment. God is sovereign over that moment. 
God is sovereign over that moment. And Christ was sovereign over that moment. Can you think of that? They did not need to come and break his legs because he had already died. He had already given up his spirit. From the very beginning to the very end, every event of the Lord Jesus Christ and his cross was determined and decreed by God. From the very beginning to the very end, every event determined and decreed by God. John 18 or John 10, 18. No one takes it from me, his life. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. Listen to Augustine once more. Who can thus sleep when he pleases as Jesus died when he pleased? Who is there that thus puts off his garment when he pleases as he puts off his flesh at his pleasure? Who is there that thus departs when he pleases or as he departs this life at his pleasure? Listen to this. How great the power to be hoped for or dreaded that must be at his as judge if such was the power he exhibited as a dying man. Let me say that last part to you again. How great the power to be hoped for or dreaded that must be his as judge. If such was the power he exhibited as a dying man, as a dying man, he exhibits so much power, sovereign power, that he is able to call death to him or restrict death from coming. How great must his power be? What insight from our church fathers. This is why we must have a healthy knowledge of our church fathers. This is why we must have a healthy knowledge of the dead guys, as many of those who are in the Reformed camp call them. How great the power that must be his as judge. Hope for that or dread it. But he is explaining or showing us the greatness of his power here at the cross. Third, and finally, the use of the term father. Luke 23, 46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In Psalm 31, it is the covenant Lord who is in view there. But here, Jesus uses the word Father. There is a huge significance in this. And let me highlight this once more. The moment of darkness, the moment of desolation has now passed. The darkness of experiencing the forsakenness of the Father. It is now all but gone. The sense that God is his father has returned to him. We can be sure that the father's face once more shined on the son. And that he died triumphantly. That he did not die in defeat. And Jesus also dies with unwavering faith and confidence in his father. Now listen. Do you see that? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The Lord Jesus Christ is the prototypical man of faith. He is the supreme model of true faith. And faith in his Father never failed. His faith was bruised. His faith was battered. His faith was bloodied. And his faith was even tempted on the cross. 
they shouted out to him and tempted him. If you are the son of God, come down and we'll believe in you. But to the last, he remained faithful to his father. He had the joy of the glory that was set before him. Therefore, he endured the cross and his faith did not waver. Listen to John Calvin. Faith has no more real or solid approbation than when a godly man seeing himself attacked on all sides and unable to find comfort in men despises the world's madness and unburdens on God's lap his griefs and cares and requests quietly or rest quietly on the hope of his promises. This is what our Lord is doing and what our Lord has done. He lays on the lap of God the full weight of all of his cares. He lays on the lap of God the full weight of all of his burdens. And he rests in the promises of God. Into your hands I commit my spirit. There was a covenant of redemption before the foundation of the world between the Father and the Son. And he rests in that promise that it will be fulfilled, that it has been accomplished. He now can rest his soul in the hands of God. But let us take this one step further. Jesus is where he is, not as a private man, but as a mediator, as a substitute for his people. Our Lord is where he is as a substitute. He is representing a particular people. A particular people that he lived for. A particular people that he died for. And a particular people as we will soon see that he will rise for. And at this point, he is committing his, his spirit into the hands of God. He is also at the same time as he commits his spirit into the hands of the Father. He is also committing our spirit. Into the hands of the Father. We die safely and securely. Not because our faith is so great. Not because our faith never wavered. We die safely and securely because our covenant head, our representative, our mediator, Jesus Christ died without his faith ever wavering. Without his faith ever being shaken. We may not be able to die with the marvelous words of Stephen on our lips. Lord, receive my spirit. Do not hold this sin against him. Or Augustine who died with these words. Or Chrysostom who died with these words. Or John Huss who died with these spectacular words. It is something that we all hope for. But it's not always the case, is it? Many godly Christians, true believing Christians, had died overwhelmed at the point of death. But they died safely, not because they never wavered and not because they never had difficult moments that were too much for them to bear. But they died safely because their champion, our champion, our great high priest king who stood as our substitute, our propitiation, because his faith never wavered. And because of his faith never wavering and because we are united to him, then his faith is our faith. And we are safe and secure with God. Because he committed his spirit to the Father. He also committed all of his sheep to the Father. And we are secured in our union with Christ. Listen to Owen once again. 
It is the last victorious act of faith. Ah, wherein it hath its final conquest over all its adversaries. And by this one act of resigning all into the hand of God, faith triumphs over death. Faith triumphs over death. And cries, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Come, give an endlet into immortality and glory. The everlasting hand of God is ready to receive me. This is the victory whereby we, be, we overcome all of our spiritual enemies. Hallelujah. What a Savior. I said in our last sermon... That if, we were to able, that if we were able to take all of the sayings, if we were to take all the sayings of Christ from the cross, that we would have a great theology of the cross and of the true nature of Christ. Do you remember me saying that last week? I said it in passing. I wonder if you look, went back and looked at those seven sayings. If we were to take all those sayings, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Today you will be with me in paradise. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I thirst. It is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Here is a true theology of the cross from the lips of God's son. And it is a theology. Here it is. That is dominated. By self-denying obedience. By amazing grace. By undeserved mercy. By perfect obedience to the Father's commands. By kindness. And by fulfilling a covenant of redemption. What a rich theology of Christ. We are able to gather from the sayings on the cross. And he prayed. Prior to the cross. Knowing that he had made this covenant with God. Before the foundation of the world. In John 17.1. Father. The hour has come. Glorify your son. That the son may glorify you. Since you have given, given him authority over all flesh. To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you. The only true God. And Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now father glorify me in your presence. With the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. Or before the world existed. That is the prayer of Christ to the father. He has accomplished the task. The debt has been paid. Tetelestai. Having fulfilled all that he had covenanted to do. And having done all that needed to be done. To secure for believers an everlasting inheritance. He says with a mega voice. Father into your hands I commit my spirit. It is accomplished. Take me home. Take me home. And take him home, the Father did. And because that is where he is, all who have repented of sin, who have trusted in Christ alone for their salvation, they too, when they leave, depart this world, they will be taken home. 
one bright morning when this life is over, as the old spiritual song goes, I'll fly away. We will be taken home. And that, my dear brothers and sisters, is the omega point of the theology of the cross. Here is the Holy One of God, the sinless One of God. And He has propitiated, atoned for our sins so that we can be home with Him. Let us stand.